Because somebody had, I had a bunch of friends, a couple of friends get them in high school because, and I don't know how this we arranged this, but we all went to the same church and the church had a pool table and it was in a room that was like way too small for a pool table. So you couldn't effectively play. It's like that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> Hitting the walls. Talked the pastor into like, they were like, can we have the pool table? And they let him take it. So they set it up in someone's garage near our high school. So then we would just all skip class and go shoe pool in the garage. Nice. And they bought pool cues. <laughs> well, you must be pretty good then. I'm not very good. <laughs> That's played. I've only played 20 times since then ever and for loss. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the jail monitors tasked with overseeing the New Orleans jail found falsified records and questionable uses of force by deputies and severe understaffing at the jail. And New Orleans Public Schools is looking into racial diversity and access to selective schools across the charter system and asking some tough questions. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Nick, first up with you, monitors tasked with overseeing the New Orleans jail and tracking its compliance with the long-running federal consent decree said they found widespread continuing problems at the facility, including falsified documents and dangerous understaffing. Give us some details on what they talked about. Sure. So this was the first time um, since Sheriff Susan Hudson took office a little over a year ago that we've really heard from the these monitors that are like you said, tasked with overseeing this long-running federal consent decree that the jail's been under for about 10 years that's meant to bring it up into up to constitutional standards. Um, so it was pretty interesting. We've known that there have been some problems in the jail since Hudson took over, um, but this was, like I said, the first time that they were really laid out. And so some of the most kind of shocking things that, that we heard about were, were medical and mental health care. Um, so in terms of mental health care, we learned that right now there is a wait list of mentally ill prisoners, very seriously mentally ill prisoners, to go to a more um, uh, inpatient type treatment center within the jail. There's a it's called the temporary mental health facility in the jail, and it it provides more comprehensive care. Um, but there's lots of of detainees in the jail right now that are not receiving any care that that need it. They've been determined to have you know serious clinical needs, but they're just sitting there and the monitor said, you know, when I first did this tour in, in December, I asked what kind of care these people were getting in instead of being moved to this facility where they should be. And she said, basically nothing. Um, mm. You know, they weren't having any sort of group counseling, any sort of, you know, check-ins even. So she said she recommended that, that they start being uh, checked on once a day um, at the very least. And, and now that's what's occurring, but you know, there's still this backlog. Um, which is a, a big problem, obviously. Um, that same monitor who's, who oversees mental health said that uh, for detainees on suicide watch, she was concerned that the people who were tasked with monitoring them were falsifying timesheets. So these detainees are supposed to be checked on at, at their cell doors once every 15 minutes, and it's supposed to be staggered in a way so it's not every 15 minutes 
on the on the dot, but so that it's you know fluctuated. And she said that 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 from her observations, she saw uh, these uh, mental health staff that that are employed by the uh, jail's private health care contractor, WellPath, writing down times that that she knew they weren't weren't checking on, mm. on these detainees. Um, which was, was very troubling, um, to, I think, you know, the judge overseeing the case and, and to the, the kind of other observers and other parties to the, to the consent decree. So those were a few things. Um, there aren't enough registered nurses at the facility, which is causing problems. Um, there's, uh, concerns about investigations into use of force being more or less, um, rubber stamped and and being done to justify these uses of force rather than actually investigate whether or not they were um you know necessary and and went through the proper procedures right um yeah those those are some, uh, you know some of the issues it calls to mind the um for me this calls to mind at least the falsification or the rubber stamping of of documentation on suicide watch detainees the really high profile case that happened i th- i forget what what jail it was in in New York, um, where Jeffrey Epstein famously um, was under suicide watch. And those records, I believe, were also falsified, and he ended up taking his life in jail. Uh, Have there been any occurrences that you are aware of or that they talked about in this report of people, in fact, um, committing suicide that had been on suicide watch? So so there have been two deaths at the jail since... uh... Susan Hudson took office, and those those took place relatively early in her tenure in in June. She took office in May, so those two incidents weren't directly discussed. Um, one of those was the result of an altercation in the jail, and one one was one was in fact a suicide. Um, those weren't you know kind of the focus of of the hearing. Mm-hmm. It was more about kind of these um, what seemed like systemic and and um, persistent issues with both staffing and, and kind of the procedures in place that, um, to, to provide care to these, these detainees. Okay. Other, um, mental health aspects of this, of this, uh, report included a kiosk of some sort. Can you talk about what that was and, and, and that it was not functioning? It's a, it's a resource for detainees. Yeah, so th- this has been an ongoing problem at the jail is that they have these these kiosks that are supposed to be utilized by detainees to both file grievances and then they can also use them <clears throat> to to get canteen and things like that. Um, and these have been kind of persistently out of order for for a long time, and it's something that that the sheriff has has said she she wants to you know fix. Um, but according to the monitors. Uh, uh, last week, there hasn't been much of much of an improvement. Mm. Um, and most of those are still out of order. Um, and, you know, there was the, the judge asked, you know, are these out of order because the detainees are, are breaking them or, you know, causing damage? And the monitor said, you know, no, these are like the, the like lifelines for these for people in the jail. They they want them to be working They're They're not the ones that are, are you know, damaging them for the most part. Huh. Um, so it's not entirely clear to me why what the what the uh, problem is getting these fixed um, and getting them in working order but um, that's one issue two things it sounds like um, all the problems are related to one big problem which might be understaffing is that correct yeah I think that 
you can you can certainly track a lot of problems to understaffing. Um, you know, I think you could, could debate certainly in terms of investigations being rubber stamped or, or justifying questionable uses of force. I don't know that that, you know, mm. can necessarily uh, be tra- traced to staffing. I don't right. know that healthcare staff falsifying documents, that's not necessarily because there's too few staff. But yes, a, a large portion of the problems can can be traced to it in terms of not having the, you know, uh, proper facilities for people with serious mental illness. Part of the problem is they don't have the security staff to open up another wing of this uh, uh, mental health facility that's that's in the jail. So, um, and and in terms of not having enough nurses to do to um, provide medical care and do uh, assessments of sick calls, those are staffing issues. Okay, and was the jail and Sheriff Hudson aware? Were they aware that this um, visit was going to happen? So it's interesting. Um, the monitors, some of, I, th- I believe all of the monitors visited in December. Um, and that was a planned visit and, and they were all there. They also, some of them visited the same day that they, that they were testifying. Um, and that was, it was not planned, it sounds okay. like. So the mental health monitor actually talked about how when she arrived, it, she she could sense that there was some chaos going on, that they were scrambling to kind of make things look, yep. um, you know, uh, up to standard when she got there. And they, they clearly were not prepared for her. And they're they're allowed to do these random spot checks and have access. That's part of their their oversight. I know in the schools a lot, they're like basically always giving people a heads up and they're not doing these kind of surprise checks. Yeah, you know, in my uh, from my understanding, the tours are usually pre-scheduled, um, as far as I know. So I'm not sure what sort of access a monitor has um, if they want to go and check something out without without informing people, um, or you know what the expectations are there between the sheriff's office and the monitors. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but it it does seem like in this instance, at least, they were able to go without giving you know at least very much of a heads up. Which, yeah, you know, uh, obviously can give you a different sense of how things are going than than if uh, people have time to prepare. So Exactly. Exactly where I was going with it. So tell me about the response from both Judge Afric and Susan Hudson, the sheriff's uh, response to this. So Judge Afric was was surprisingly, um, surprisingly quiet regarding the findings. He did not comment too much. At one point, he did say, um, when, uh, following the testimony of, of the mental health uh, monitor, you know, these are problems we had 10 years ago around the time the consent decree, you know, came into uh, effect. And, you know, these were the problems that we were attempting to remedy in the first place. So, he, you know, I think he's caught, said it was very disheartening to hear that these things were taking place. And the sheriff you know, it, I should say that the lead monitor, Margo Frazier, made a comment that the sheriff has been more cooperative with the with the monitors than uh, the previous sheriff, Marlon Gussman, ever was. Um, so she really, you know, praised her for that, despite these, you know, pretty serious problems at the jail right now. And, you know, what the sheriff said is this is all, you know, comes down to staffing, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, 
what we really need to do is ha- have more deputies in the jail and, and have more bodies to, to provide these services. Hmm. Um, she's also setting up a compliance bureau within, within the sheriff's office that will do audits and, and sort of assess compliance with the consent decree in more real time. She said she's doing more trainings with new recruits regarding um, the consent decree and the expectations in it. So that was her response. You know, I think, I don't think that any of the things she heard, at least based on, you know, my read of it seemed to be super surprising to her. You know, she was aware of, of staffing issues. Uh, one thing that was interesting in your story to me was that this this isn't even the full report. This was just an initial um, findings. What Are there to be expected? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I was... Um, Surprised because, yeah, oftentimes these sorts of updates are come after the monitors issue their reports and there's kind of a, um, a hearing to go over that. This report has not been released yet. It's due in June. So, well, my, you know, my guess is that the judge wanted some something before then, some update um, on what's going on in the jail before then. And this was uh, one way to do it. Um, so... When the report does come out, though, I think we'll get kind of an even more granular understanding of, of what's going on in the jail um, in terms of incidents, in terms of uses of force, um, mm. in terms of investigations and, and uh, medical and mental health care as well. But probably no more surprises, just just more detail, as you say, granular detail. Hard to say. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to say. Um, I think that that's you know, likely that that it'll probably be be pretty reflective of what the monitors said um, last week, but you don't know for sure. Okay. This all happens with the sort of undercurrent that's been going on for 10 years now of this federal consent decree. And you got to imagine, or we know for sure that, that Sheriff Hudson and everybody else wants to be out from under that this would not bode well for that, would it? No, it wouldn't. Um, you know, and it's interesting, the sheriff, you know, ran on a platform of of saying that she, she had what it takes to, you know, bring the jail up to constitutional standards to get it out from the consent decree. And, and clearly there are still some really serious issues there. Gusman, the, the prior sheriff, when he was in office, he he took a very combative tone with the monitors and basically said, you know, the jail is is running fine. Yeah, there's some issues, but you your expectations for what you know what I can do here is too high, and was was trying to get out from under it. So far, as I mentioned, it sounds like Sheriff Hudson is is, is being cooperative with the monitors and is still, you know, on board with wanting to bring the jail up to to the compliance standards that they have set and and what they expect. Um, As this, you know, drags on and as efforts are made and and maybe not not met to the degree that, that, you know, either the sheriff or the monitors would like, whether or not that relationship changes, um, whether or not there continues to be the, the, cooperation and effort is, you know, it remains to be seen. So we'll see. Yeah. I just want to take a moment just for a second, not to over-dramatize this, but just to, to burrow down into this thought that for 10 years, this jail has been operating 
at a level that is not up to constitutional standards. And we who've been observing this, you far longer than I, and, and those who have been long lifetime residents of this city are just used to it now and maybe inured to what that means. But it is really, really a big deal. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And the sort of day-to-day realities of what goes on in, in the jail um, because of the problems there and, and the, the realities that people who are both detained in the jail face and the people who are who are tasked with, work, with working there. Yep. You know, as, as the lead monitor said, it's not a safe place. Um, it's not a safe place for people who are who are being held there. It's not a safe place for people who are working there. All right, Nick. Well, thanks for keeping an eye on it for all of us. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Karen Gadwa the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. We provide the information and analysis necessary to advocate for more accountable and just governance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org donate. Thank you. Okay, moving on to an equally explosive topic today. Marta, there was a meeting this week of the New Orleans Public School Board to discuss the entry requirements at schools that have eligibility requirements. And there were some interesting findings. Tell us about the meeting. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Avis Williams, the new superintendent who's been uh, in for just under a year now, gave a presentation on what she called eligibility schools or you know, other people may know as selective admission schools. And there's a couple kinds, right? There are uh, schools that have academic eligibility requirements. So those are schools like Lusher, now called Willow, that has a you know a test for kindergartners. Uh, Franklin has a test for freshmen, incoming freshmen, um, and Audubon and um, Lake Forest have you know entrance requirements as well. There are also separately schools that have language requirements. Um, if they're immersion schools, and once you get kids in higher grades, you want to you know make sure that they understand the language so they can understand the curriculum. Um, but uh, Dr. Williams chose to focus on those um, academic requirement schools. And what she uh, revealed and broke out, you know, are really startling racial disparities um, in in the students who are being applying and it being admitted to the schools. And when I say applying, um, in I think every case we had more black than white students applying to these schools. Obviously, that's reflective of our enrollment across the city, uh, majority black enrollment in our public school population. When you looked at admission rates between Audubon, Franklin, and Willow, uh, you saw you know disproportionate um, acceptance of white students. Yeah, talk about some some of some of the um, the numbers that you saw. Sure. So, um, and there are two things that Dr. Williams was pointing out here. One was acceptance rates, and then two was in students who were ineligible. Because at some of these schools, um, at the elementary schools in particular, Franklin is a high school, but at the elementary schools, you're competing for a set number of seats. So you have to be eligible in order to compete in that lottery for a seat. And 
you know, what we saw at Willow was that 94% of black applicants were ineligible. That's compared with uh, 44% of white students who are ineligible. 94% um, ineligible. Ineligible, not eligible, correct. You saw a similar disparity also at Audubon. And, you know, the concern there, and to be clear, um, we don't exactly know what caused ineligibility. Was that that they failed to, you know, make that test? Um, or is that that they failed to finish an application? Those are um, both very different concerns, but they're, you know, equally concerning if we have this many students applying and not getting into these schools. Uh, what do we need to do to help our Black students um, be eligible for the school or, you know, get all the way to the finish mark and, and be eligible for that. Right. Did she talk about what the solutions could potentially be? She's wanting to form a, you know, a task force to take a look at this. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to think about. Um, one thing that the district has done recently is uh, when the, all these charters were renewed, the academic um, eligibility schools were renewed, they had to begin using the common application, um, formerly known as one app, now known as NCAP, you know, to pile on more confusing acronyms. <laughs> so putting, in theory, putting the those schools into this common application will increase accessibility. You don't have to, you know, run around and drop off individual applications during school hours, which is the thing that people used to have to do. And show up uh, to an open house or some such event. Right. And uh, these other kind of like subsets of events that would give you points in this application and lottery process. So you don't have to do that anymore. In theory, that should open some things up. But, you know, one thing that really was not discussed yesterday, and that is uh, absolutely going to play into these racial disparities, continuing racial disparities, um, is, a, is a family limp link priority and a sibling link priority. What, um, what kind of numbers or, or, or boost does having a sibling in the school give you in that or points? If you, I mean, is it literally a point system? Some of them have point systems, but in terms of one app or in terms of N, in terms of NCAP, um, if you have a sibling, you are slotted at, at a higher priority to okay. get in than a student who does not have a sibling. And so it's so you know, the way that it's basically, I mean, automatic entry is a little too generous, but it is certainly a, a better shot than if you don't have an older sibling at that school. So if the So if, we know that's gonna perpetuate racial inequality. Exactly. So if the if the percentage of, of whites to blacks in a school is is eighty to twenty, for example, and you've got that preferential treatment going to siblings, it just keeps going like that until Right. Until, until the, the lineage kids age line. out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so even though, you know, even though, for example, Willow no longer has an attendance zone, which they used to have that, you know, kind of that priority for that attendance zone is still going to be passed down through siblings. In other words, neighborhood preference. Yeah. OK. These schools, because they are um, a, you know, academically high performing because they're selective admission, when they are rewarded new contracts, they get 10 year contracts. And most other charter schools, when they're starting out, get three to five year contracts. So you can see that opportunity for that to kind of build perpetually. And so when those many of those contracts were renewed in the last couple of years, that's when they had to join that common application system. I saw something else in, in the, the PowerPoint about the meeting or in the meeting that said that the, the certain guidelines that the eligibility requirements that schools have to follow that, as you said, they must participate in the, whatever it's called now, the common app system and, and cap. 
Um, they cannot, they can't give neighborhood priority. And then the percentage of at-risk students must be the same or higher from the year that they received their charter. Is that what that means? Conversion? Yep. So the year that they converted to a charter, it must match whatever that population in the district was at that point in time. Okay. So um, what I, what I read I, from she that? Did, she did not get specifically into those details, but I, I do not believe that that is uh, accurate. <laughs> the percentage needs to be high, the same or higher? Oh, no, no. That the risk? schools are meeting that um, that the schools are mimicking the percentage when they when they became. Do you think that the year that the charters were created, that the the uh, disparity was less great than it is today in some of these schools? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think in uh, Lusher was in two thousand six, right? Willow School now it's called. Um, they had neighborhood preference then. So that's another, yep. Um, that's another factor in what their population was going to look like then. Um, so there, there are a lot of these kind of, you know, legacy, um, right. Policies and shoe-ins that we're seeing that are now, you know, shaking out. Um, and it, I think it's really exciting that Dr. Williams wants to bring this to the forefront. The data that she presented yesterday, that is you know, data that we as reporters would not have access to. And that's, we've asked for this stuff before mm. and they won't release it on account of, you know, student privacy. We've also asked for anonymized data in the past and we've not been able to get it. So given that she is discussing it for the first time, isn't it in her purview and the, the power of the school board itself to change these guidelines to, to decrease the disparity? Couldn't they change the guidelines? I mean, I, I think that this task force is going to try and come up with ideas to address it. Um, it in terms of the elementary schools, um, I don't know how you do that without explicitly setting aside seats for black and brown children or economically disadvantaged children. And I'm, I don't know if that's legal, actually. I don't well, know how that works. But you they're, know what effect, I mean? they're effectively setting aside seats for siblings. Yes. So it's a good, that's a good question. And then at the conversation at the high school level, which was uh, interesting and slightly different. So Ben Franklin high school has an admissions um, test. You have to take an English and a math test um, and score a certain percentage to be allowed into the program. But Franklin allows all students in who score high enough on the test. So that's not a question of a lottery situation or a sibling preference situation. That's just a question of literally how many kids are prepared to enter that school. So that means is when we're seeing, um, when we're seeing disproportionate entry rates there, that means that black students are less likely to be prepared to pass this test. So what does that say about our elementary schools and where black students are going to elementary school? That's, right. that's the bigger question on the table that we see um, that Franklin raises for us. Mm, okay. Is that a new position, the executive director of equity? Yes, I believe that is a new position. And so um, that that ED is going to oversee a task force that's going to kind of look at this, you know, process through what their the administration is calling an equity lens. Um, so and I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what kind of um, either policies we see put forward or we have seen school, um, schools put in preference for, um, you know, students with disabilities before 
um, in the in the lottery system. And there's also preference for certain zip codes based on where the school is. So they, you know, I think preferences is a is potentially a way to fix this in the in those lottery systems. Mm. Preference within the the common application. Sorry. Okay. In the context of announcing this new ED of equity, the executive director of equity, did she talk about who is on the equity task force? Are parents going to be able to be on that? She didn't get into details about that yet, but I I imagine like most of their task forces, it would be a combination of school staff, um, some school leaders, and then also parents and or community members. Okay. What was the reception like at this meeting for all of this? You know, it was mixed. I think you could definitely, um, everyone agrees that this these numbers are, you know, appalling and shocking, and this is not something we want to see in our school system. But you could also hear from some board members, you can sense uh, kind of a trepidation or apprehension, um, you know, not wanting to blame the schools essentially for having these enrollment disparities. Um you know, which which I understand to a certain extent, but it is something that needs to be thoroughly examined and looked at. Um, you know, I, I know they're trying to stand up for schools in their district, but it's it's a problem that needs to be tackled head on. Mm. Okay, well, we get to um, hear about it as it progresses and see what results. Yeah, yep, looking forward to it. Um, so definitely very important stuff here. Um, and as Dr. Williams like pointed out, she said, Whenever she's representing the district in public or at community meetings, she's often asked why, uh, you know, they see more black and brown students in DNF schools. And, you know, she's she's trying to confront that with this analysis here and, and these steps moving forward. So definitely interested to see how this plays out. It's a fantastic story. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. All right, you guys. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Carolyn. See you guys. Yeah. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel and education reporter Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.